0: I think that things are going to be really good in the next year, even though I think we've got to go through a recession of unknown severity before we get there.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf
2: and Jason Cochran.
3: Well, welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of Geek Skeezers and googleization a show from the People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf, and thank you for being part of Googleization Nation.
2: And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the voice of the most important crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today and our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people.
3: It's only been two months uh, since you've seen some familiar faces here. We hosted a similar event uh, with our guests just uh, about mid-September, but it seems like we've had a decade of volatility and uncertainty in job markets, labor markets, uh, stock markets, and our economy. So with each passing day, I'm more convinced Never normal is our new way of life. So buckle up, folks, because today we brought back our three favorite business experts to help make sense of jobs, money, and markets. Uh, first of all, we've got Dick Beauvais. Uh, He might be a familiar face to some of you because he's been on TV uh, well over 1,500 times. And if you miss Dick on TV, you might have read about him in you know, one of about 10,000 different interviews that he's done. Uh, Dick is the chief financial strategist at Odeon Capital Group and a highly sought-after leader for investors, media, and even the White House. Uh, also, in the lower right corner, we've got Matt Van Alstine. Uh, he's co-founder and managing partner of Odeon Capital Group, a leading Wall Street executive. Matt and Tick, Tick, uh, I can't talk. Matt and Dick team up each week on their podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations known for their well-informed outlook and views. And uh, as you will quickly learn, uh, Dick has a crystal ball. And as he told us, it's a pretty clear recently. So, uh, and last but not least, we've got our friend, John Aiden Byrne. Uh, John is an award-winning gener- journalist, uh, multimedia editor, host of the popular podcast, Dick, Dig Light Deep, uh, and host and moderator of Odian Capital Conversations with Dick and Matt. Uh, if you have, haven't have been listening to Dig, Dig Life Deep, I join John each week for what's become a really popular segment called Future Shock 2.0. So let's get started, gentlemen. I'm going to just, oh, kudos, I just want to stop for a second, and I want to give some kudos to John. Uh, your podcast is now ranked in the top 1.5% globally uh, in a universe of about 3 million podcasts. Uh, and Odeon Capital Conversations is now a top-ranked Apple podcast in the business news category in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia, uh, and frequently among the top 10 and top 50. So congratulations, John. So, Thank you. That's great. Uh, Dick, we're going to throw the first question out to you. You, as I said, your crystal ball, uh, as you admitted, has been pretty clear lately. You called it correct correctly about runaway inflation you called it correctly on the housing market and you called it correctly on job losses especially in the mortgage and banking industries Uh, you got it right on interest rates and uh even on a recent odian capital conversations uh, i think it was episode 42 so you can look that up uh on apple or spotify or wherever you listen uh you took a kind of pretty nice victory lap well deserved Uh, But let's talk. Where do you see the labor markets and stock market headed for 2023? And there's a lot backed in. Anyway,
0: I think the labor markets are going to weaken uh, considerably uh, for the next six months. I think uh, unemployment is going to rise. If you would ask me to what rate, I I don't know, but certainly 5% and above looks good. And the reason why I say that is uh, if you take a look at the uh, monthly labor reports that come out, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can see a a few statistics which are are very concerning. The first one shows that productivity is declining and has been declining for uh, well over a year. Uh, If uh, productivity is declining, that's telling you that there are too many employees at work. Secondly, confirming that, you can see that the number of hours work have not grown, you know for again a few months. And finally, you can see that the growth in wages is not as great as the growth in inflation. plus we're daily now getting, you know some announcements of layoffs. So I definitely think that uh, the labor market has peaked. I definitely think, unemployment is going to rise. I definitely think that none of the issues that uh, people have talked about concerning shortages of workers are going to be the crystal ones. The crystal one is going to be, where can I get a job?
3: Do you do you see any industries that are going to be more affected than others? Because we're getting a lot of conflicting information. Uh, you know, I follow these pretty closely, and there are certainly many employers in in several industries that are really continuing the struggle, like education, healthcare, um, even in some manufacturing for the skilled labor. And you know, and yet we have all the tech jobs that are being laid off. So, do you see any patterns or any trends in there?
0: Yeah, we. You know, I'm convinced that uh, you know the Cold War is back, right? That we've had this bifurcation of the world economy into two, if you will huge blocks. And I'm I'm convinced that that means that each country that has the capability to do so has got to look to itself for a lot of things that they were importing uh, for money flows, a wide variety of things. So I believe that number one, energy, natural resources, you got to be investing there. Two, you've got to be looking at defense. You know, we've got a huge uh, stockpile of uh, weapons that are now gone to ukraine that have to be rebuilt you have to look at manufacturing we're going to have to start making television sets again inside the united states and amazingly you've got to look to food apparently according to the experts one quarter of the world's population is not being fed at all or or at least properly so those are the places where you want to go you want to avoid the things that I'm gonna say, you know, had no real meaning in what is now a real economy. And that means you you've gotta get away from, you know, social uh, media, you've gotta get away from, you know, the tech that supports social media, you've gotta get away from consumer, you know, discretionary purposes, you know, that was the last cycle. We're now moving into the next cycle. You have to look at the next cycle and and, and as I say, move away from the last cycle. You're not happy if you work for Amazon today. You're not happy if you're working for Meta. You're worried if you're working for Google. But if you're working for Martin Marietta, if you're working for United Technologies, you know, you've got a bright future ahead of yourself.
2: And Dick, not to get too deep into the Cold War thing, but we do probably have several listeners who are millennials or Gen Zs that are like, what's this term, Cold War? They may not have experienced that or know what it is. Obviously, not going to ask for a full history lesson, but can you share, when you mentioned Cold War, who's it with and what does that look like?
0: Okay. In, in 1990, you know, the Soviet Union basically fell apart. And when it fell apart, the world changed. You had the free movement of money. You had the free movement of goods. And as a result of that... You were, you were getting the most efficient, if you will, use of, of resources around the world. And and that, is, that has been true for roughly 30 years. When the Ukraine was invaded, you forced, uh, or Russia forced uh, countries to pick sides. And, and it looks like most of Eurasia, whether it's Russia, China, I'm gonna put India in there, which I know Matt, totally disagrees with. Uh, and, and, you know, you've got, uh, you know, North Korea, Iran, you know, you've got a block of countries. The, the, you, you've got the Southeast Asia, which was the manufacturing hub of the world, you know, after the, you know, breakup uh, of the Soviet Union in 1990. We cannot rely on Russia for oil and, and, and you know nickel and a variety of other uh, items. We cannot rely on Southeast Asia for manufacturing. We cannot rely on China for rare earths and the chemicals that go into the drugs that we take uh, on a daily basis. We've got to start making that on our own. So the other side in this, uh, if you will, bifurcated world, is the North Atlantic countries. The North Atlantic countries have definitely begin to coalesce to a greater degree that they have in the past. And they have to look to themselves for the products that they wanna use. And that's why I believe you gotta go back to the basics. And if you go back to the basics and that's where you make your investments, I think you're gonna be much ha- happier over the next few years than if you stick with what happened you know, in, in, in the last cycle.
3: Which takes us so, and I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, so if we're going back to the basics, I assume part of that might relate to the infrastructure, because we're really struggling at that. We have this infrastructure bill, and this isn't a political statement, but uh, it, you know, based on on everything that we hear, it's going to kick in next year, the following year, maybe the following year after that. Uh, what are your predictions of how how is that stimulus going to impact? You know the jobs, the market, um, and and basically the economy.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's very. I think it's going to be very positive. Again, I don't want to get political either, but I think that the fact that uh, we need to do what that bill demands that we do. We need to rebuild infrastructure. If if we're going to, you know, be a manufacturing hub again, and by the way, you know, the United States in the 1900s became the powerhouse that it is because of its manufacturing prowess. If we're going to go back in that direction again, you know, we need technology which shows us how to lower the cost of production. We need an infrastructure which is going to support you know, this ability to manufacture goods and services. We need what this bill is demanding that we do. So, I, I think that's positive. I think that's where jobs are going to come from, and that's where we should be focused.
2: And Matt, a question for you on, on the tails of that, of what uh, Dick just shared. Um, you've kind of been raising some alarm bells at Odeon Capital Conversations about escalating debt in the United States. And you recently mentioned it kind of a pretty scary doom loop that we could face in certain scenarios. Um, could you share with us a little bit uh, from those conversations of what the doom loop is and possibly how far away it is?
4: Well, it, 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 it'll it surprise everyone when it happens. Doom loops are not predictable in the sense that they're totally predictable just like a hurricane is totally predictable but predicting when and where is the is the challenge the, the problem with the doom loop is that the fed is tightening by raising interest rates which sends basically deficits non-linearly higher because it raises the cost of financing the debt for a debt data, you know uh, a debt laden nation like america is so when that sends us treasury yields up that sends deficits higher which means Eventually, you're going to have a massive recession at a point when you can't afford it. And the doom loop is, what does the Fed do then? Do they continue raising interest rates into inflation, into a recession? Or do they go the other way and try and do QE? And I feel like what they announced they started doing in 2022 was, we're going to raise interest rates slowly, and we're going to try and land this, I think they called a softish landing, and they're... You know they they still have that in their sights it seems, and a softest landing is hopefully the the outcome that we get as concerned citizens of our nation. But if you don't get the softest landing, you're going to end up with a situation where either they're going to have to be raising rates into a massive recession, or deciding to cut print QE, and which will elevate inflation, um, which is the reason they're raising rates in the first place. And so it becomes this doom loop where. The only way out is is basically a really, really bad recession when they finally, you know, throw in the throw throw the cards on the table and, and you look back to the late 1970s and that's eventually what had, had to happen with Paul Volcker. The difference this time is when Paul Volcker did it, they had we had thirty percent of debt to GDP. And right now we're closer, depending on what you want to count. Some people don't like counting Social Security and, and Medicare, but if you include a lot of that, we're well above 130% of debt to GDP. So, you know, the, the tools are a lot less and it, it's a scary proposition, but if they can start cutting rates earlier than later or do QE the way, same way ECB is doing it while still raising rates, you're going to start to see the path that they've chosen. But I think we're going to start seeing QE come back in, a, in a, quite a bit, in a big form. And Matt, th-
2: there's been a lot of talk, too, about whether or not we are in a recession. Are we in one?
4: Yeah, I I, I kind of get a align a lip, a little bit more with the, the Joe Biden approach, which is two two consecutive quarters doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a recession, because the reason you have negative GDP print is because of the inflation. The GDP is accelerating at a rapid rate. And then when you apply the formula of against inflation, it looks like the country's shrinking. But it's really hard to argue you have a recession when you have below four percent unemployment and by and large, employment doesn't seem to be cracking. So I think it's really hard for anyone who is cheering for a recession to argue that we're in one when you have a pretty stable workforce.
3: So, so Matt, I mean, you, you said that so far the labor markets are, are holding and they are. And uh, we had a little bit of a discussion a couple of months ago on this uh, about, you know where do we think it's gonna go? Dick, you had said that you think it's gonna go over 5%, which is still well under what it is historically in recessions. Uh, which I think in the 12 recessions we've had since 1945, uh, the lowest uh, unemployment rate was 6.1. So we're either going to be either under that or at the very low side of that. But Matt, I mean, are, are you in agreement with with Dick on where you think unemployment is going to go? Is it going to go as high as 5%? I, and I know it's difficult to predict, but just on your, your sense. Yeah, that, I mean,
4: my, my sense is if we if you are able to achieve in hindsight what's called a softest landing, I think Dick is probably on the high end of the unemployment rate. Um, the, the, the question is, when stuff starts to break down, I mean, go back to March of 2020. You know, going February of 2020, the unemployment rate, I believe, was around 3.5%. By the end of March, it was nearing 10% because everything basically stopped. Now, it was engineered and it was kind of strategic. But what you have what, right now is the reason unemployment is so low, a big reason of it, is because the labor pool the voluntary labor pool that you know raises their hand when called and says hey i'm looking for work i'm willing to work has shrunk by about three million people since 2020. that is people that used to work that are now staying home for whatever reason maybe it's stay-at-home moms stay-at-home dads it's people who are retiring it's people who you know maybe got injured or are now claiming disability but for whatever reason three million people have left the workforce if you see inflation continuing to rise at some point in time Household budgets get so strained that people who are sitting on the sidelines somewhat voluntarily might be like, hey, let's go back and, and I need to go get a job. And if that happens at, at, at the right moment in time, you could see uh, unemployment go up quite rapidly because of hiring freezes happening at the same time because of the recession. So it, there is somewhat of a feedback loop that could reverse the unemployment gains rather quickly when people off the sidelines start looking for work just at the time people who have jobs are getting laid off you could you could see it go well past five or six percent but it's really hard to tell because a lot of analysts look at the situation and say this is the beginning of what we've been predicting for decades when the baby boomers start to retire the labor pool will shrink and it will when will will it'll eventually show up in higher wages what we haven't yet seen is those higher wages and I think it's it's hard to say why that is, I, I think Dick touched on it a bit with the, the productivity, but I also think there's a part of it that could be that while companies are bringing manufacturing back home, they're looking at a different manufacturing world than when they left. Because right now, you basically get the same treatment in the United States if you manufacture in Mexico or in Canada. And Mexico is obviously the cheaper option. So I think it's possible you're seeing the productivity shift below the border because of the NAFTA rules that allow imports come while people are decoupling from asia just as dick is saying they're not bringing back to the united states per se they're bringing back to north america and with the
2: so i want to touch on that one real quick matt and and i want to get your take on this too dick so there's a chips bill i believe i don't know if it's been passed uh in the legislature but talking about you know bringing manufacturing of chips you know back here to the united states and certainly one of the things that that I often think about is that's good for us to bring those jobs here and for us to get that independence in terms of the, the price for goods and products, though, whenever we, we bring those jobs back in, are there ever any concerns in terms of long lasting price hikes because of the cost of what it takes to create those kind of goods in the United States compared to other parts of the world?
4: I'll go first and let Dick answer that the the chips bill did pass. I mean, it passed with an overwhelming majority, I believe in the Senate and the house and, and, and the president was really excited to sign it. Um, You know, obviously it's a long-term chips bill. And I think what people saw with uh, COVID and the shutdowns in Asia, mostly was that chips, semiconductors are the new oil. And if they, if they, You know, you look back and why we had a lot of like I was trying to buy a refrigerator. I couldn't buy a refrigerator because it didn't have a chip because, you know, the new refrigerator is connected to my to my Wi-Fi and it needs a chip to do that. Car manufacturers got to the point where they're delivering cars without the chips and you'd have to get your radio and your air conditioning and, you know, a few modules later. And so America looked at that and said, oh, my goodness, we have a massive weak link in our entire industrial capacity and we don't have chips here. Um, in terms of the cost though I don't necessarily agree that it will necessarily bring down the cost because chips ultimately are going to become a global commodity just like any other global commodity and the price will be what the price is and we'll just com- be competing on a on a global scale but we won't be dependent on foreign governments and foreign actors and and shipping things over so i I think I think they overdid it a little bit in my opinion because there's so much money going into chips that as of right now, I think chip prices have now reached the glut stage and there's an abundance of excess chips in the world, just as we're about to build a lot of factories. But there's a strategic purpose behind that. And I personally would love to see America, along with, I think Dick would agree, of us to get into rare earths and other areas that we are dependent, wholly dependent on not friendly foreign nations to supply us with. And I think the Chips Act is a good step in in looking that direction but there's so many other products that we could do that to that it's it's kind of strange that chips were the only one we focused on i, I don't know if dick has different opinions
0: no no, no i agree with you i think that uh, you know it'll take roughly 3 years to get these factories on stream and by the time they come on stream given the massive improvements in technology uh the speed at which you know you can uh process things on these chips, these chips probably will be far advanced to the ones that are in the marketplace at the present time, and and I think that will benefit. But also, um, I believe that inflation is now dying. I believe that inflation, uh, you know, we we will not lick it completely, and we're not going to get it down to 2% tomorrow, but every indicator that I look at uh, shows me very clearly that uh, inflation has had it. It just cannot revive from where it is right now. Now, now what am I talking about? First off, I think that uh, you know deficits create the need for printing money, which creates inflation. Uh, the deficits of the United States government are falling precipitously. Uh, you know, we, we had hit four and a quarter trillion a couple of years ago in one seasonally adjusted quarter. We're now looking at six hundred billion. Secondly, uh, the Fed is not printing money to buy the deficit anymore. The Fed is selling treasuries. In the last few months, the Fed has been reducing its holding of treasuries. The money supply, even though I think that M2 is, is not a very good indicator of the global money supply, the money supply has gone negative. It's negative. It's going down. It's not going up. Then you've got commodity prices, which have shifted in the other direction. If you take a close look at the CPI, you know, item by item, you can see that, uh, you know, beef has come down in price. Milk is not growing as fast. Eggs are not growing as fast. But but the bottom line is apparel is going down. You know, uh, electronic equipment is going down. You know, we're not seeing it there. And if we look at the labor market, we discussed that a moment ago, we're not seeing, you know, over – you know, whelming increases in labor costs. So if we're going to get inflation, where's it going to come from? Who, who wh- What's going to start it? So I think that the Fed, you know, w- will be successful in its battle to lower inflation. I hope that, uh, you know, they stay firm for the next uh, few quarters, but then I think they're going to have to back off. And I think that's when, you know, we got to change our focus. Our focus is not going to be on inflation. Our focus is got to be on recession we don't want to create too big a recession but but the fact is i think i i think that things are going to be really good in the next year even though i think we've got to go through a recession of unknown severity before we get there
1: i'm reminded um what ira you said some time ago about a job full recession i mean it'd be interesting to get dick and matt's take on that uh the whole demographics in america have changed and in and in the west you know there's just less people entering the workforce um than there were uh, a generation or two ago so so that's one aspect of it and and the other thing i wanted to just to tie into quickly we've been um pounding this on audient capital conversations uh, for for months about what dick has looks at you know this is the sort of the start in america of a manufacturing renaissance it's going to take a while but he has produced and you know shown evidence that we are seeing jobs coming back even into some of those areas which were once formerly the rust belts of america so there's a lot of positives there and then there's a lot of uh, shifts which clouded as well at the same
4: time well i mean you look back at prior recessions and and it was you know ceos got nicknames like chainsaw jack and and you know, for, for doing layoffs early and often and proud, and they would be rewarded with stock appreciation. You know, if you announce a layoff, your stock goes up 10% and it was kind of a core concept of, of what a recession looked like. I think that business owners and CEOs this time around are kind of shell shocked of what happened after, after March of 2020, when, when the country started reopening, you know, in late 2020, early 2021, at least the red parts of the country, labor was nowhere to be found. It was really hard to hire people. It still is hard to hire people. And I think the, the shell shock has led to, you know, let's wait until we have to, because it's hard to acquire workers, It's hard to and it's hard to keep them. So why would we do any layoffs? And I think it's possible that that might contribute to a softish landing in the sense that, you know, no one's applying for jobs. Um, when I say no one, I mean statistically it's below average. It's not no one is, but like it's a tight labor market, and part of that tightness is I think is business leaders deciding we can ride this out. We have we have good balance sheets. Let's hang on to our workers because it's going to be really hard on the other side to get them back. And I think that might be more a, a, a big contributing factor is the psychology of managers in managing their workforce. And if you look at the recent layoffs like Meta and and um and Amazon, they're not necessarily rewarded by the by the stock market the way they used to be. I mean, I know Meta went up, but I think that was in my mind that's more of a hope that he's shifting back to social media and away from from uh, digital life. But I, I I think that the it's possible that this entirely probable maybe that this is a job full recession if there is a recession.
0: Yeah. I think also I mean, you got to take a look at immigration. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I I happen to believe in a wall, and I believe that uh, people should not be allowed to flow into the United States uh, at will. Uh, But the fact is, we need these people. We need uh, an immigration system which allows for, you know, huge influx of people who are younger. We can't go the route of Japan or where China is going. We can't have a a population which is being supported by a small number of people under the age of 45 and a large number of people above the age of 75. We need these young people to come into this country because our birth rates are simply too low in the United States, as they are all through Western Europe. So we need immigration policy. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's ever going to be created, but we're doing it the wrong way. We shouldn't let people pour into this country over the border. That is absolutely incorrect. But on the other hand, we definitely need these people. We need these young people. I think if one thinks about China, you know, in, in a serious fashion, uh, and what is going on there? It, it's almost impossible to believe that China is going to overtake the United States. Not just because of the demographics, but because you know we, we know what you know. Xi Jinping wants to do with his economy. He wants Marxism, in, you know, internally. He wants Leninism in terms of running the country. He wants an aggressive foreign policy. He's 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 killing. He is killing innovation. At the same time, as he's got a population which is aging and where innovation is needed, we in the United States, you know, sponsor innovation. We sponsor freedom. We sponsor, you know, all of the things that should make our economy grow. So I think, again, you got to think about integration and you got to think about the fact that China just may not be able to achieve any of the things which, you know, is widely you know, accredited to the country in the press. Look at the start with, and Matt is a better, you know, spokesperson on this than I am. Just take a look at the aging of the economies around the world. We need young people and we need innovation. And China isn't going to have either one of them. And therefore, we are going to beat China.
1: I'm sure Matt wants to respond to that take. But it's interesting because picking up on what Matt had said on one of our podcasts that uh, demography is destiny, and, and China has, uh, has its own inherent problems. Uh, it's an aging workforce, and it, interestingly enough, it's resorting now to robotics on factory floors to produce what the lack of labor, uh, you know, the lack of workers can't do for them. So it has a lot of substantial issues, and you're right, and we need immigrants to America and to revive the country and, and to produce and grow
3: our economy. Yeah, I mean this fits in, and and again we talk about the birth rates, and we we talk about all these things as is, is is almost distinct and separate entities. But we we have lower immig- we have lots of people coming over the border, but we have lower immigration, especially for skilled uh, positions. Uh, we have the baby boomers are are exiting even if they don't want to, even if they still need to work. Um, there's Many baby boomers are now in their 70s and, and, and even approaching 80s. So there's less and less are, uh, baby boomers even eligible to work, but many people are finally taking the retirement. So we have immigration, we have baby boomers exiting, uh, and we have the fertility rate. And I just want to paint this picture. And for anybody who listens and follows our podcast, you're, I'm a broken record at this. But for since 1960, for 50 out of the 60 years, we had 2.5 million new workers coming into the workforce every year uh, between baby boomers and then millennials. So for almost, fi- for 50 years, we had this 5 million new workers. Our fertility rate in 1960 was 3.6, it is now 1.6. What that means is without immigrations with baby boomers exiting and with few births, our, we have now have less than 500,000 new workers coming into the workforce every year. So we went from two and a half million to 500,000. Uh, we don't have a lot of new blood coming in to replace those. So those managers who are hesitant at following their predecessors, uh, and I think it was Chainsaw Al and Neuron Jack, by the way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for reference, it was Chainsaw Al Dunlap from Sunbeam and and, 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 and uh, so anyway, just just a point of reference. Uh, but we're, they're not going fo- to they're not, they're not following that. And the other thing is that we, we talk about the number of jobs, but we had almost six million excess jobs that people were hiring for. So when people were cutting back now, they're also cutting back on jobs that weren't filled which means that that's not going to lay off somebody. Now obviously there are people in industries that are going to be laid off. But if we go back to technology because we're so focused on that because that's where most of the big layoffs are occurring so far, if we go if we tie that back into the infrastructure bill. So we when most people talk about infrastructure, we're talking about bridges and highways and buildings. But where does the where does the internet fit into that? Where does 5G and 6G and where does, uh, you know, building sensors and 3D printing? I mean, we, you know, that's going to be a big part uh, and we need semiconductors for all those things, you know, as well, but where does building out broadband and building out the internet, um, you know, fit into that? Because when we talk about tech, and I know this, unfortunately, personally, technology stocks got killed. Um, But there's also this future for some of these stocks, or not just the stocks, but just for, for, for jobs that, that that they've got to come back. Am I right? Or am I just wishful thinking that my stock portfolio is going to rebound?
0: No, I think you're right. I think, you know, we I had this conversation with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? Because I said, you know, what do you guys, you know, they've got 3,000 warrants in companies which are startup in nature in Silicon Valley, right? So I said, if you take a look through your warrants, what, what are these guys doing in technology? Are they trying to figure out how to get a better uh, set of earphones for Apple? Are they trying to figure out how to, how to make it easier for, uh, you know, the consumers to c- communicate with each other over what they had for dinner? Or are they trying to figure out, you know, how they can get the cost of production down, how they can make use of, you know, the tools that they now have to, instead of focusing them on consumer, you know, not even consumer staples, but consumer, you know, if you will, frivolity, you know, are they are they focusing on, you know, what we need to do to make our manufacturing, you know, globally competitive on a price basis? And the answer, of course, was, and, and I, I mentioned defense, and of course, you know, talking to someone in California about defenses, you know, talking to, you know, you know, someone who doesn't, you know, believe in this type of stuff. And the answer is no, we're not using the technology the way you you think it should be used. We're using the technology to create all of the things that you're well aware of because we've seen all of these products come out but that you know that has to change. And because it has to change, it will change. And all the things you're talking about are absolutely necessary, absolutely likely to be utilized but in a different fashion. We need to use it to, con- to to reduce the cost of producing goods in the United States so the goods produced here are, are competitive on a price basis internationally. And I am absolutely convinced that that will happen.
2: And the other side of the coin with infrastructure is the skills. What are the skills that we need people to come in? We said we need the younger generations to step in. Um, and we've got a great question from a listener uh, that I want to share and get. Matt, we'll start with you this time. Get your take on this. But the question is, what skills can people be learning to future-proof their careers? And what are the skills that are most in
4: demand uh, as the economy continues to evolve? I mean, it, it's a joke and people mock it, but the truth is you need to learn how to code. Um, you've got to be able to, to learn, to turn your education into computer language because computers are the way everything is moving towards. Everything is moving towards more automation. Um, more programming, more programming requirements. And it's gonna come a day where, you know, even regional managers of paper companies are gonna have to learn how to code because, you know, what we're doing with these infrastructure bill, if we do it right, it'll be like the Eisenhower highway system. It, it's the lubricant to make the economy so much better. And, you know, the 5G, and if you get to 6G stuff, that's, that's the infrastructure, that's the highway that will allow for automation that will allow for trucks to drive from you know New York to LA, maybe not necessarily sharing lanes or roads with passenger automobiles at first, but being able to make that journey, pull over, charge themselves, keep going and do it without people. And you, you start to see efficiencies that come into the marketplace where a paper, a regional manager of a paper company in, in Pennsylvania might need to be able to program or fix the programming of his truck and go in and, and, and look at some Python code and, and tweak it a little bit, because that is gonna be the skill that set differentiates. When I was graduating from college, which you know was two or three, two and a half decades ago, knowing Excel was a huge advantage. You know, my, the people I went to work for, they had no idea what I was doing back there. And it was, to me, it was so, it was basic math, but like I could impress my bosses by putting together a spreadsheet that automatically updated and they thought I was a mad genius. And I think that that will be the, the, the new language for young people coming to the workforce is being able to fix automatic programming in a way that, you know, increases efficiencies in, in throughout. No one's going to be unemployed if they can speak Python. Yeah.
1: I I would, be, oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, you know, I was just going to add a second layer to that, Matt. Aside from all the STEM skills, you know, science and medical, um, all those kind of High-end uh, learning—you um, know—abilities, uh, uh, the 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 vocational skills. I mean, look at there's a massive shortage of uh, plumbers, carpenters, electricians in all the metro areas. Many of them pull down one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. That's that's the, the realistic figure. They don't have any student loans. And that's also a big burden on our labor markets. And, and we need to encourage kids who have that ability or, you know, want to get into the workforce early and want to earn a middle class um, and live a middle class lifestyle to pick up on these vocational skills.
0: Yeah, I think, John, I, I'm more in John's camp at the moment than, than Matt's on this, because I think Matt is absolutely correct in what he says, but we're already doing that. All right. You know, we are focusing people on I've got a, a raft. I've got 19 grandchildren. I got a raft of kids that, uh, you know, want to do whatever they have to do to get a job. And they're all focused where Matt, you know, is, is, is talking about. But I think that if we're going to bring back the type of uh, industries I'm talking about, Uh, Digging in the ground, you know, putting two pieces of wood together, you know, learning how to use your hands to make products is is going to be somewhat uh, more, you know, more important in the sense that we don't have a whole bunch of people who see that as their goal, you know, in terms of coming out of school and and being an electrician or a plumber or or a guy who who works on the line in, in a huge factory. But those are the people we need. And, and I think we're not producing them. You know, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, I, I don't know if Jamie Dimon actually followed through on this, but he, he once said that basically he's no longer giving major grants to colleges, uh, you know, because they don't produce workers. He's giving all of the grants to vocational schools because they produce people who have a skill and can go to work. It seems to me that's that's where the big vacuum is in, in the labor market here. We need to, to get people who have huge vocational skills.
3: And, and I'll extend a little bit what Matt was saying. I mean, I do believe people, I don't know if they need coding skills, but they need digital skills. There's still a shortage of people that are still operating on flip phones and don't know how. To, they don't know how to connect. And, and the fact of the matter is, uh, even if something simple is how do I get paid? How do I, you know, on a direct deposit? Um, or how do I, correspond? how do I apply for a job? Um, you know, again, pa- paper applications uh, are, you know, are a thing of the past. So even though companies are looking for that, they have these, these uh, a lot of HR tech that's reaching out to people. I can't tell you it's all th- the best and, and that needs to be refined, um, but that's still going to be the way that they do mass hiring and how they reach people. And especially in a mobile, a hybrid in a remote world. Uh, yet a recent survey just came out and they said that one third, of manufacturing uh, employees and one third of healthcare employees are digitally illiterate, uh, and you know that that's a challenge. So we don't even have stepping up to the plate. Uh, we don't even have to go to. Uh, coding. We just have to make sure that they have enough digital skills to to be able to 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 be employed or or, or to be able to get a job. There's a couple of things, um, and I know we're we're 40 minutes into this, and the, there's a couple other topics. Uh, we want to let at least get your feel on it. Um, you know, with the um, with crypto, I mean, it's collapsed, um, and I, so I guess there's there's a couple of questions out here. One is, get your comment on that. How because how is that going to impact the economy? Uh, in the long run, uh, and I know a lot of people are 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 looking at this almost like we did twenty years ago at Napster. It was like oh this the Nap- there's a the whole suit about Napster and it's going to go away, but it, behind the scenes, how entertainment got delivered uh, was completely different. It was already past tense by the time the Napster lawsuit went up to uh, about privacy went up to the Supreme Court because then iTunes and the cloud it came into being. Is, is the current, is the, is the FTX collapse and the crypto collapse um, just a temporary glitch because it was new and unregulated? And five, 10 years from now, it's just going to be one of those things we learned from that and it's going to evolve. I, and I know it's a complicated question, but just trying to get a sense of is this an isolated event? One company went bad, it's the birdie made off of crypto. Uh, or is you know, where, where are we? What's the future of this, and how is it going to affect the average person? Because not everybody's into crypto.
0: You know, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, there were, crypto served no function, in other words, it was projected to do uh, to replace fiat currencies. To do that, it had to be able to do three things. Number one, it had to be useful in handling day-to-day transactions. That's, you know, a lot of people think that they can do crypto in day-to-day transactions, but if I need a slice of pizza, I'm not gonna pay for it with crypto. Uh, So it's it's not used heavily in, in daily transactions. Number two, it had to be a store of value. Well, certainly anything that comes from $68,000 now to $16,000 in a period of, uh, what, 12 to 18 months is certainly not a store of value. And number three, it has to be utilized to pay your taxes. People forget about that one, but the government has to want to take that money, if you can call it that, and and basically utilize it. And basically, uh, other than Japan and, and Ecuador and a few places like that, you know, you, you cannot use cryptocurrencies to pay your taxes uh, in most countries, and you certainly can't use it in the United States. So the, the net effect, and then what does it do? Crypto, you know, is a funk, you know, has been utilized as a speculative, te- you know, speculative if you will, method of playing technology. And that is not working either. Now at the base of crypto is something called blockchain. and at the base of blockchain is something you know basically related to storing information and moving information. so if if we can get rid of everything that is we've we've seen in crypto for the last couple of years and get down to the basic, then maybe you know crypto will come. Well, it will definitely come back. I mean, you know, uh, just yesterday, the Federal Reserve of New York uh, with uh, Citigroup and um, Wells Fargo uh, set up a a committee to create a digital currency called the dollar. And the Chinese have got their own digital currency, you know, around the yuan. So I think that what will happen is all of this fringe stuff, which was created, is blown apart and and will, will not come back. But what will come back is the more solid aspects of what crypto can do in terms of holding data and transmitting data and, and, and stabilizing, if you will, values in, in the fiat market.
4: I, I, I kind of disagree on on this front. I think, first off, the word crypto, I think it's going to go down in flames just like the uh, the old-fashioned word information superhighway is no longer used. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember that, and it became the World Wide Web, and you know now we call it the Internet. And I think crypto will become a, a dirty word eventually, but I, I think on the in the on the argument on the blockchain, um, I think the the blockchain is ultimately going to be the big loser here, and and I'm not trying to argue that ultimately it won't, you know, rise up and become the the the, the standard for most industries. But at the moment, what I've seen I think the lesson from the blockchain is the blockchain was pitched you know as we don't need courts. We, we can do blockchain contracts that automatically you know solve any problem or any dispute. Or um, crypto was argued as safer than Fiat because you know you hold the keys to your own crypto. And what you see with, with FTX going down and the way it went down and the way it's been, you know they, they're calling it a hack right now, I think ultimately you might find out that it wasn't so much a hack as employees just employees of FTX stealing the you know the crypto coins on the way out the door. Blockchain has been proven to be extremely unreliable. If you were a normal bank, if you were Enron, you know widely considered to be a a fraud, uh, um, people went to jail over it being a fraud. When it filed for bankruptcy, its assets were frozen, and the government was able to you know appoint a trustee, and, and a judge was able to you know go through the assets it took a number of years but ultimately the assets were sold and the creditors were repaid with the proceeds of that and that's the way it's supposed to work but what's happening in FTX because of the blockchain not in spite not be not in spite of the blockchain their their assets are being drained today this morning just before we got on the the new CEO of FTX who's you know I don't want to swear but he's calling it a cluster you know something <laughs> um you know he, he's talking about how there's no internal controls, there's no, no any, any sort of ledger that he can go back and recreate what happened because the blockchain and the crypto has made it so opaque that it's going to be hard to actually get recoveries for the creditors there because of the blockchain. And Dick's point, he's right that the United States is launching the temporary you know the test of the, the digital currency, but in the cities where China has launched the, the, the test, there are different prices in supermarkets if you're paying with with the the blockchain yuan you get a 15 or 20% pr- um premium price than if you're paying with regular old yuan because people like the comfort of knowing that the system works and i think ultimately what's going to happen is people are going to go back and say wait our system works our our system of a federal reserve you know having a bank can, you know have rules set down guidelines having courts enforce the rules it's way better than a bunch of kids creating a blockchain where Everything gets automatically settled because it's hard to reverse that, and I think people like the idea that a court and a judge can come in later and reassess and and give back the money to the prior, you know, to to the proper owners. And so I I think the big loser in this one ultimately is going to be blockchain. I mean, even yesterday you saw the Australia regulators, the uh, securities regulator there, they were they were putting a lot of money into doing security settlement through a blockchain. And they've basically walked that entirely back and canceled it because they they realize the problems are it's really hard to reverse those transactions.
1: Matt, do you think the blockchain may be reinvented in some form just because of the efficiencies it supposedly um, leads to? And and the the other thing is is more a question for for Dick. I mean, I, I think what this episode, this spectacular collapse of FTX is leading to is more regulation of crypto if it exists, and i 'm not a fan of crypto, and also the idea of a, a, you know a custody accounts for a lot of these coins by some reputable venerable banks on wall Street
4: I mean the first answer, the, the, the first question I, i've already forgotten the question i I, I think that ultimately um, blockchain uh, was does blockchain have to be reinvented? I think it needs a layer of government involvement government is you know we, we we who are free market believers kind of look at government as the obstacle but at the end of the day what you really need from your government and what we always have supported is you need a judicial system and a legal system where you can air your grievances and and settle disputes and have dispute resolution and blockchain needs a layer of that that comes from outside of blockchain it's probably going to have to come from a government mm-hmm. and i think you might end up with sanctioned blockchains and unsanctioned blockchains and one will be considered the safe version and the other one we considered the wild west yeah i think if you uh, take the internet and compare it to blockchain
0: um because Matt and I obviously agree on everything with the cryptocurrencies. It's, you know, it's the core that we, that apparently we disagree on. But if you think about when the internet came around, uh, essentially there was a lot of frivolity uh, and and a lot of companies went under in uh, 1999 and 2000 as the, the internet was reconfigured in a fashion in which it provided services that were needed. And I think that's what we're talking about with blockchain. We, we, we know that the, you know, we have this technology. We know there's a better way to store data and move data. Uh, we think that, I think that, you know, blockchain, you know, is, is solving some of those problems. But, you know, Matt could be right. Maybe blockchain is not the end result. Maybe it's an evolution of the blockchain. But at the end of the day, just the way the internet now is an integral part of everybody's life in the United States, we're gonna find that whatever we call this thing, whether you call it blockchain or something else will be an integral part. But in terms of the answer to the, the basic question, what do you think of cryptocurrencies? I think Matt and I uh, are in the same boat in, in believing that it's it's uh, it's something that is not gonna recover, just the way you know the thing that uh, provided puppy food on the internet didn't survive. We're, we're coming up toward I'm the end.
4: Sorry, I think Bitcoin okay. could be the, the one survivor. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Yeah.
3: But, okay. So just that we we're trampling over each other. So Bitcoin will be the survivor, right? Or, or possibly the survivor. Cool. A um, couple of things. We're coming up to the end. And of course, everybody wants to know what what the ultimate forecast is going to be. Um, but we did have a great question. And this was uh, earlier on. And uh, I certainly recognize it because he says, I'm a big fan uh, from Norm. I'm a big fan of Odeon Capital Conversations that Matt and John come through my headphones weekly on my long walks, which is great. But he had a question. How do you see the legacy wealth management industry evolving in the face of the younger generation's love with digital services that gamify investing and personal finance?
0: Well, I think that uh, the younger generation sees uh, you know, the stock market as a video game. Uh, I think that uh, what they what they love to play you know digital games uh, as we're well aware and all of a sudden you know we were given they were given the opportunity to do that with the stock market and gee whiz you made money doing it so I think that uh, you know we then went off into this world of massive speculation because of these young people playing video games uh, on the stock market, but but I think that uh, you know you come you everybody will come back to the basics. You got to have a company. It's got to produce a good. That good has got to generate uh, excess cash flows. If you do that, you can pay dividends. You can buy stock back. You can you can create real value. And I think uh, the younger generation. Will we'll be there as quick as anybody else, given what's just happened to them in terms of uh, you know tokens, in terms of uh, non fungible tokens, in terms of uh, you know the, these these meme stocks, etc. Um, you know the basics. The basics will survive, and everybody will live by the basics. I think.
1: Well, there are trends and fads, and it's interesting to talk about crypto again during COVID nineteen when all the stimulus checks went out in america it was like rocket fuel for the crypto industry and for online brokerage accounts and of course a lot of that crypto wealth has disappeared but um we'll see but uh, the, the younger generation the millennials or whatever category they're now called um do embrace technology so we'll probably see various iterations of online trading going forward and it'll be fascinating to watch it
4: I don't know. I think, I mean, you know, my, my grandparents strongly advised me to not get involved in a Wall Street job because they had memories of the Great Depression, and they never invested in any securities of any sort. They, they bought houses, they bought real assets, and, and and made a retirement that way. And I wonder if a lot of these guys have gotten burned. You know, it's, it's really hard to watch, especially when you're in your 20s, your entire net worth just plummet and not bounce back and and no one comes in right into the rescue i think i think it's possible that you have a generation that may try to opt out of of traditional wall street investing
1: I, I kind of agree with you there on that matt because there's a whole generational shift among younger people even about owning a home taking out debt you know student loans and everything it's 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 embedded in their dna at the moment and there could
3: be a shift there you may be right it could hurt wall street ultimately so there's we're, we're almost at the end, but I want to have. Uh, there's two really critical questions. Uh, one is if we're sitting here again, and I'm sure we'll talk again, love to have you guys back uh, after the beginning of the year and see where things are and do this periodically. But if we're back in October, in the fall of, of uh, 2023, where are we going to be? And the second question is what's the future of Twitter?
4: <laughs> I think I think you lose a lot of money and a lot of people on Wall Street have lost a lot of money betting against Elon Musk I mean there, 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 there there's hundreds if not thousands of of funds who are dedicated to shorting Tesla that all had to throw in the towel um you know it, it's in terms of 2023 I I'm hopeful that we're on the tail end on the recovery and and and, and starting to see things for brighter purposes, but, you know, the predictions are really hard, and especially when you're talking about the future. And um, 2022 coming into it, you know, I don't think any one of us would have said we're going to spend our entire year hearing about a war in Europe, and we have been. And so a lot can change in a year. Um, uh, Three weeks ago, I think all, at least me and Dick, would have put a lot of money betting on the red wave because we believed the polls and we believed what we were seeing in the media, and it didn't happen. So I it's hard to predict, but you know, I'm optimistic. I think we're all optimistic, but it, it seems like we're on we're closer to the bottom than than when we started a year ago.
1: I, I wouldn't bet on Twitter. I certainly wouldn't apply for a job on Twitter. They're doing mass layoffs at the moment, as we know, but I, I think it'll be around for a while. I, I don't know that this time next year predictions are very hard, as Matt says, but depending on where the economy is. Nothing would surprise me that we'll have another stimulus spending program as we, you know, move lurch closer to the, you know, presidential elections. But who who can really tell? So much happens uh, so quickly. Who would have predicted the war in Ukraine?
0: Yeah, no, but I know nothing about Twitter. I, I don't even have a Twitter account. Never had one, uh, so I have no idea there. But uh, I do believe uh, in Elon Musk. Uh, you know more than. Uh, more than a little bit. I mean, the guy makes things happen. He's the Thomas Edison, as people have mentioned of our times. And Thomas Edison had a lot of flops, uh, but he had some incredible successes. So I, I, I tend to think that following Elon Musk is not the worst thing to do. Where do I think we're going to be a year from now? I, I'm really optimistic. I think we'll be finished with the recession. I think we'll have come to some accommodation on the war. I think uh, the country will be percolating on all of these sectors that I'm talking about, manufacturing, natural resources, food, defense, et cetera. So I think uh, you know we may have a miserable 2023, but I think uh, when we get to, uh, and by the way, we're in November, not October, uh, I think that, uh, I think things will be I think things will be looking good.
3: Well, that's great news, uh, Jason. Uh, any comments? Where do, Where do you think we're going to be?
2: I agree. I I think we're going to be in a better spot. And just my my real quick thirty seconds on, on crypto and Web three, um, for for what it's worth. You know the you know the whole point of crypto. The whole point of of Web three has been decentralization. Um, that there's been a lot of mistrust with centralized institutions, and so I think what's going to be interesting a year from now is. I think what's clear is we we can't have the pendulum go the complete opposite way, where it's just completely wild, wild west and reserves aren't in check uh, whenever people are wanting to make withdrawals and there's no solvency there and there's no liquidity. But I also wonder, like there's probably gonna need to be some kind of regulation of some kind, but but there's still gonna want to be self-custody and freedom of permissionless ability to do transactions in some way with, with smart contracts. And so I guess my big prediction when it comes to Web3 is, I don't think Web3 is going anywhere. I think this is just a, a blip on the radar. Um, for a while, that's a growing pain, um, but the the, the Web3 um, L1 platforms that are being built like Ethereum, like Cardano, are eventually going to come like the Microsoft and the Googles in terms of the types of, of software applications that are built. Just in, in my small sphere, uh, being in the tech industry, so many software engineers and developers, some of the best ones I know, are leaving They're well-known companies in Web2 that have been very successful and are embarking on the Web3 projects because they believe in the vision of what blockchain can achieve with decentralization and giving more power to people in terms of their assets and and how things are used. So that would be my one prediction is, is, uh, even though we're kind of in a a dark period uh, for crypto after what happened with FTX, I do think there's going to be a future for it. Um, What that is, I'm not sure, but I think a year from now. We'll probably have a much better idea than we do today.
3: And from everything that everyone said, I'm going to stick with the words printed above my head. It's going to be never normal. <laughs> I, I I I think we'd all agree that that for sure. If we if there's something we can predict for sure, that it will continue to be never normal. We want to thank everybody. Uh, we had a really really nice interaction. Uh, we had a, a, a lot of listeners uh, and watchers. Uh, if you watch, if you if you are listening and watching, please um, share this. Let others know. Let uh, it'll be up there, the uh, replays and so forth. Hopefully, we can have you guys back uh, after the beginning of the year and have another conversation like this. And and see if your if the crystal ball is still pretty clear uh, for all of you who are part of Googleization Nation. If you're not a member yet, um, please uh, go up to GoogleizationNation.com. Uh, please subscribe, and uh, you'll get updates. We got a lot of exciting things. We got uh, many more events like this. Uh, happening after the first year. Uh, John and I are even talking about doing one about Future Shock uh, sometime in 2023. Uh, I'm Ira Wolf.
2: And I'm Jason Cochran. We want to thank you for tuning in. Like Ira said, if you haven't joined Googleization Nation, please do so. And also like and subscribe to the podcast. We're now in the top 1% in the world and climbing, and that's all because of you. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.